countries around the world are opening their economies once again, and the reaction thereto is further revealing a chief American philosophical argument. We'll get into that first on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening here with me. When I reveal these details here in a moment, you will say, uh, yeah, man, we've had that debate for hundreds of years, maybe thousands You've covered it on the show quite a bit. However, everybody, this is a new chapter and a new way to illustrate the very important points and have them interact with each other. We'll talk about that and a lot more in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. We are meeting together cautiously and with precautions around COVID-19, and so you're invited to any given Sunday morning at 1030. Uh, be, I, I think there's a lot of the show A lot of the show today is going to be very different than last week. By the way, last week, the reaction to last week was really great. I, it wasn't a lot of emails that were disagreeing, so there's not much to bring on to the show because the best, best radio is where there's respectful disagreement, you have some conversation, interaction. But there was definitely an appetite out there for pandemic response. There was definitely an appetite for the Ahmad Arbery discussion. And so thank you all for listening and sharing it. I think it's now the fifth or sixth most listened to episode of mine, and it's only been out less than a week uh, as of the moment that I'm talking to you. So while that last week, it felt epic. Like, let's, let's get into these these stories that are happening right now in the world with pandemic, social justice, Ahmad Arbery. And then this week, well, what are we going to do? Well, back to what everyone else does all the time. Back to COVID-19 and the policy surrounding it, but getting into the deeper philosophical questions. Here is where I want to begin. I want to play for you some audio from the governor of Wisconsin. You may have heard that the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, their state Supreme Court, it ruled, I would argue correctly, that the governor had overtaken power that does not belong to him in his declarations of emergency or declarations of, uh, of what all the other declarations a, gov- a governor can make, the, it escapes me at the moment, the name, and c- ordering everyone to stay home over COVID-19. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, again, I would say correctly, says you actually don't have that power. One governor, one person can't unilaterally bring that kind of power to himself. So I want to play for you. I think it's Governor Evers is his name. He was on Cuomo. Yeah, the Cuomo guy who had COVID-19. He's on CNN. He interviewed his brother a lot. So he's on the Cuomo show from CNN. This is the governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers. The Republicans convinced four uh, four, uh, Supreme Court uh, justices that, uh, A, facts don't matter, B, the law doesn't matter, and C, the the precedents don't matter. Well, really quickly, there are some things that matter that the Wisconsin Supreme Court said. It is, you say the facts don't matter. It's a a really arrogant thing to say. Nevertheless, what the Wisconsin Supreme Court say mattered is the thing that they're supposed to be concerned with, the rule of law. We don't do rule of law based on how we feel or our fears or, or in, in reaction to, to circumstance. The rule of law is the rule of law. It's important for the sake of it. 
And you don't have the power to declare everyone to, to just declare everyone must stay home just because you said so. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court says, yeah, uh, we, we have to have other people involved. There's checks and balances here. You don't get to do whatever you want unilaterally. It was a horrible decision, not unexpected, not unexpected, because clearly there were, there were four justices that were looking for any way they could to concur with the Republican majority in, in the legislature. So it happened, and uh, now we have the Wild West. That's the part I wanted to get to. Now we have the Wild West. I also read an article this week from, it was a UK paper, I can't remember, I think it was called The Week. They were talking about some of the relaxation of stay-at-home orders in Europe and particularly in Britain, but they were talking about some in the United States as well. And I remember reading something like the citizens are now being less left to themselves. So we have this, this uh, attitude. Let's, let's explore that. Well, now we have the Wild West. Citizens are going to be left to themselves. I guess you can make it sound scary, but do you know what that actually just sounds like a definition of? That's called freedom. That's just literally all of life. You're free. The, the citizens have been left alone. Well, yeah. That's actually what I want you to to do in most, like 99% of cases, a lot of us just want you to leave us alone. Honey, I didn't ask you for anything. I'm not asking you to give me anything or take care of me. I take care of me. I take take care of those around me. I act responsibly. I love my neighbor as myself, so I behave in a way that... I am free, but then governed by by morality and ethics so you don't hurt other people. This idea of the Wild West and people being left to figure things out for themselves is being treated philosophically by one side as a negative outcome, but over here, that's exactly the right outcome. People taking care of themselves in a system of freedom. And so we have this, this question, this fundamental question that comes. Is freedom best? Is it better for people to be free and, and by nature, take upon themselves some risk? Freedom is risky and worth it. Whether that risk is, in this case, there's some COVID-19 risk. I've talked about this before in the past in context of gun regulation. We've talked about it in lots of different scenarios. Is it better to be free and risky or to be in some level of bondage in something that you think of as safe? Which one is the more desirable outcome? I guess everyone will have their own opinion and position. I know mine is certainly freedom. Give me freedom and risk. That's supposed to be us. That's supposed to be the United States of America. That's the Nathan Hale line. Not give me, give me safety or give me death. Not take care of me or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. Give me the ability, not give me the ability, give me the opportunity to take care of myself and those around me. So it gives us this question, what's better? Is it people being free or is it giving power to a small group of people and then having them 
rule us and lord over us? What is the better of the two options, or is there some gradation in between? Before I continue on this discussion, I also want to make clear that everyone is having the same discussion right now because we are opening. And you might look at, at media, and they seem to treat some folks with R's behind their name as irresponsible openers, and folks that are doing the exact same thing, the exact same policies with D's behind their name, and they treat them a lot better. I want to give you Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky. This was the guy who was hardcore going after churches during the shutdown time, and now he starts laying out his plan for reopening the state of Kentucky. May 22nd is also when we're going to let the travel ban expire. Uh, the travel ban has been uh, very important to where we are uh, and to flattening uh, the curve. And we still need to be very careful about where we travel to. If you are thinking about going to the beach right now, it is still very dangerous. And remember, there are hundreds of cases in western Kentucky related to a trip to the beach. I'm looking at the screen right now where, where he has, he's pointing people to, is the, is the plan for what's reopening. And you start seeing all, all in the month of May, things like retail reopening, funeral homes reopening, opening weddings for a certain number of people per square footage, massage therapy reopening, uh, photo shoots reopening, horse racing with how many fans, because horse racing, you know, a big deal in Kentucky, uh, how many fans can be in a given facility. Like all, I call them fans, but gosh, we know that horse racing in Kentucky is a little bit different than a fan. Those are called gamblers. Nevertheless, so now we have everybody's reopening, even the most, I mean, go to all the Democrat-run states. Everybody's reopening because we know we have to. It's, it's untenable, any other option. And so now it's allowed us this opportunity to ask this fundamental question. Is it, is, is it bad? For, is freedom bad? Is freedom too risky? Should we look for more, should we look for more, uh, for more government regulation on these things? And so the, the question then becomes, well, what do we do with our freedom? What did we do with our freedom? Because I would argue to you, as we're now months into this thing, almost all of March was taken up with it, all of April was taken up with it, we are now long into this, we've got enough evidence and data from the United States and around the world to start asking ourselves, maybe, maybe there was other courses of action. Would freedom be better? And I want to bring to you now from 538 some numbers. 538, by no stretch, is a conservative outlet. It, if it leans anyway, it leans left. But I actually like 538 because despite all their writers being liberal, like the editorials on 538 are liberal, when they do news, they do news. They keep it down the middle. They're supposed to be statisticians. That, they actually have my favorite sports website because they just get so much into the statistics. But here's something they found using cell phone data. There's this uh, data they got available from AT&T, from Verizon, and a few others, where they were measuring cell phones moving around. So your cell phone location services turned on, and these whether this makes you comfortable or not, your cell phone company knows where you go. They know how far you've traveled, and they know when you're at home. Very interesting fact in every state, every single state, where a governor declared a stay-at-home order. Because there were some that didn't, by the way. Wyoming never did. Uh, there was a few others. I, I don't think 
Ar- yeah, Arkansas didn't. I don't think Alaska did. There were so, there was a few. South Dakota, Iowa, Oklahoma. They never did. What the cell phone data shows is that the peak of staying at home, so the number of people not leaving their home, the peak number of, of not moving, just staying in one place, happened in every state before the government order. So the people were getting information. We were getting information from the media. We were getting information from the government. We were hearing about this thing called COVID-19. And in every single state, people decided on their own to stay home. To not go out and risk being infected or infecting others. And then the government put it put in their order. But the people did it themselves. The people didn't need the government to tell them to do so. That's what the data says. When the people had their freedom, they actually behaved responsibly with it in the United States, and we should be grateful for that. We should commend one another for that. Even before the stay-at-home orders were given, I recall, even at my gym, so much more precaution being given, uh, even more hygienic steps. We we started seeing that even at my where I work my day job. There were all kinds of guidance being given out. Sanitizer was everywhere. There was new steps being taken. Already we started seeing people wear masks who could get them. Like the, the people getting information with no one telling them what to do and mandating them what to do, with no governor or government saying, we'll punish you if, we don't, if you don't do what, what we tell you. The people at large were doing the thing that brought, that mitigated their own risk. Get this too from the cell phone data. The, the, uh, the other peak, the amount of people moving around in all of those states, that has also happened before the stay-at-home order ended. So in the few states that have actually already ended their order, we found that the people self-regulated too. They took their own information, the information they were getting, they determined their own risk level and how much risk they're willing to take, and they started moving around before the government said it was okay. So maybe... As we look back on this, we, we start asking ourselves this, this fundamental American question. Is it better to be free and take risk, or do we need a situation where you give power to a few, they make all the rules, and we all just do exactly what they say? I, looking back now, because we, we, we were staying at home before the order, because businesses were putting in... Uh, mitigation techniques before the order, it leads me to this point. Freedom can work. And when we come back, I want to give you an, an old illustration of mine about freedom and responsibility, the balance between the two. We'll do that, and then I've got a lot more to do today on the show. Admittedly, a lot of it is COVID-19 related and the policy surrounding therein. We'll try to get off of some of that too. We'll get started when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. The thesis for this portion of the show is essentially this. If we are responsible, we can also be free and start getting back to some kind of normalcy of life. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show. Connect to it on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And thank you for listening on Saturday mornings on his radio talk 91.9, 92.9 in the upstate of South Carolina or wherever you find the podcast. I am grateful. I have said many times on this show, 
And it is not original to me. I tried to find who originally said this, and I can't figure it out. The quote has been attributed to enough people that we probably just don't know. But someone said long ago that the United States of America has on the East Coast a Statue of Liberty. And what we need to do on the West Coast is go set up a statue to responsibility. Because if you're going to be a free people, you must necessarily be a responsible people. And if you will not be responsible, you can be sure some government will come along to take power from you and force you to be responsible, either by giving you an incentive to do it or by punishing you if you are not. That long-standing concept of balancing freedom or, that's a better word, accompanying freedom with responsibility can work too as we reopen everything. Freedom can work. We're just going to have to be responsible. That means the the steps that we've heard. It's, it's going back to where, before the shutdowns, it's washing your hands regularly. It's equipping your offices and workspaces with plenty of disinfectant materials. It's no, it's no longer shaking hands. It's keeping six feet away from each other when it's, when it's necessary and, and wise. For those that feel compelled, it's wearing masks when you're around other people. And for those of us who aren't going to wear masks, not discouraging other people who do feel compelled, that we don't make them feel weird, that we, we have grace for each other in all of those decisions. That's, that's how we do it. It's businesses making the decision that even if, we, even if we're not being told to do this by government, we're not going to have more than this, of, this number of our capacity of people sit in here. It's, it's responsibility where we decide to be responsible. Because what, what, what we did here, maybe we're, we're underselling it, is guys, we did do it. We did bend the curve. The original goal to make sure the medical system didn't get overwhelmed, we did it, except for one place. Tragically, in that New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut area, it does appear for a lot of, or for several hospitals, especially in New York City, we did overwhelm them. But now they even have empty beds. There's The field hospitals are, showing, are, are shutting down. And so we did it. We can responsibly go into the world, and then if someone does need medical care, some really intense medical care because of COVID-19, well, now the resources are available. So we can go be free, and it calls upon all of us to be responsible with that freedom. And that call is for everybody. It is for those of us, I will go ahead and put myself in the category, of, of people who took this very seriously, takes it very seriously, and embraces the idea that we can live in this world responsibly, knowing there's going to be a second wave and a third wave of cases, but knowing now we can handle them with our medical capacity. So basically I'm trying to say someone like me who doesn't have a lot of fear around it, not a lot of fear around what's going to happen next with coronavirus. And so I'm going to behave in a way that I don't want to risk anyone else's health because I'm so confident in my own. I want to be a good neighbor, love my neighbor as myself, as not being a risk to others. Now, those that do feel differently, I have no judgment for you. If you have a lot of trepidation, if you have a great deal of fear around your own health and the health of others around you, someone you're close to, 
And so you are much more careful. No judgment, but you do have to take so your, your own responsibility. The same way that you do with against, against every other disease or risk. Li- living is risky. Again, freedom is risky. Life is risky. And so now you've got to recognize if you're particularly trepidatious around this or as you go live in the world, you've got to make your own decisions about whether or not you want to eat in public, how you interact with convenience stores or getting gas and at, at a gas station, what you go to the doctor for and what you don't go to the doctor for. Those are all decisions you have to make and now you're responsible for those things because I can only be responsible for me and you can only be responsible for you. And so all the way, uh, I say that, but then I, I just, said a, just said a moment ago, part of my responsibility, I'm responsible for me. I'm also responsible for how my actions affect others. And so I want to be careful around how my actions affect others and what risks I'm willing to take from actions of others. So I'm going to leave it there. My point here being, final point, in my estimation, the thing that's always better is freedom. And for freedom to be successful, it requires personal responsibility. So there's a call here to both. Go be free as we reopen the economy. Also, be responsible for your actions and think about those around you. Two court cases I wanted to get to on this. I mentioned at the top of the show, the Wisconsin Supreme Court correctly, properly, I was encouraged, tried to put some government back in their proper boxes. Governors were taking too much power. Governors were going beyond what the Constitution would give them for how they can declare emergencies and taking powers upon themselves they really did not have. The Wisconsin Supreme Court did a good job of putting that governor in his place. You don't you don't get to be king here. I get upset about it when presidents act this way from both parties. I get upset about it when governors act that way. It's good that you, the judiciary seems to be getting this right, the, the judges. Not just in Wisconsin, but also in North Carolina. I know I have several listeners in North Carolina. That state Supreme Court said to the Democratic governor there, you can't single out the churches, and even if you can't single them out, you can't tell them not to meet. That's part of the First Amendment. I think I've given this to you before, but let's pretend you don't remember everything I say, and let me roll this out for you again. The First First Amendment is more than law. It's poetic. It is poetic language. When you see the beauty of the Bill of Rights, I can't get into it now. Let's just do the First Amendment. So the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law establishing religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This establishes your right to believe what you want, to believe what you believe sincerely. Then the next one is, the next right is to, uh, the right to freedom of speech. So number one, I have the right to believe what I believe. Number two, I have a right to say what I want to say. Number three, it's, after that one it is press, freedom Freedom of the, no 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 Th- third one is freedom of the, uh, uh, association to get to get together for redress of grievances. I might be getting these out of order. No, it, that's a third one is press. So I have a right to believe what I believe. I have a right to say what I believe. I also have the right to say what I believe in a mass distributed way. I can write it out. I can put it on a podcast. Now no one has to listen to me, but I have a right to distribute it. Then number four, redress of grievances. I have a right to. Believe what I believe, say what I want to say, broadcast it, and then get together with other people who, who believe what I believe and demonstrate, number five, and we have the, that ability to do it in a way that we're asking our government to take some kind of action. So that's the, a summary of the First Amendment that you may have not heard anyone else give but me in that way. And it is poetic, it's beautiful how we've written those freedoms up and how they build on one another. 
And the North Carolina Supreme Court says that fundamental building block. I have the right to believe what I believe and to practice my faith. Says you can't stop them. That's something I've loved about Henry McMaster. Or as I like to say, Henry McMaster, the governor of this sovereign state of South Carolina who knows that the nectar of sweet southern politics is the almighty dollar. That's how he talks. And Henry, Henry McMaster was speaking to several conferences. I've been, conference calls I've been in on, on, on Zoom. And he was very clear. You were never told not to meet. The government can't tell you not to meet. Or as he would say, the government. The government can't tell you not to meet. But we, the churches, were, get this, we were free. Also, what were we? We were responsible. Took responsibility to love our neighbor, neighbor as ourselves and to take care of our own members. And so the North Carolina Supreme Court says, you can't do that. You can't tell them they can't meet. And that's a good win for religious liberty. So it's really rare that courts make good decisions around the Constitution on the side of freedom, but that happened twice, and we should be grateful for that. Now, speaking of all these political leaders, these judicial and political leaders, I have noticed... Uh, how quickly people reverted to the same old games. So we had this really big disaster, and then fairly quickly, people reverted back to playing on their teams, their left-right Republican-Democratic teams, not thinking rationally or reasonably, but just doing that team politics thing people do that is so obnoxious. I'm going to connect I'm going to connect all of this promise. We're going to we're going to tie it all together. And that has been true of COVID-19 policy responses. We've seen it in, the, in actual behaviors. Uh, counties that voted for Hillary Clinton have been way less active in moving around based on that cell phone data compared to Donald Trump voted counties. There's a lot, there's, and then polling. Polling just shows if you're on the left, you want to shut down longer. If you're on the right, you want to open up. So there's a political and partisan divide. And there were two things I read here recently that are, are worth considering as we try to understand each other, because that's part of my goal too. I've got strong opinions, maybe you've noticed over the years. I believe what I believe strongly. I, I try to be humble enough to be disagreed with and be corrected when I'm wrong. But m one goal I have is that we understand each other better and have better conversations. So it's particularly when we're talking about how maybe the left sees the right, and even though I'm a, I'm a creature of the right, I want to give you some tools on trying to help left-leaning people respond to and understand where folks on the right are coming from when it comes to the reaction to policy responses on COVID-19. And I want to present that to you with two sources primarily. One, Fareed Zakaria. I used to really dislike Fareed Zakaria in my younger years, uh, he just, he just seems like a guy who genuinely doesn't like the United States of America. I, and that really was the end of it. I mean, I, I don't think of America, as I've said many times, as a people group. I think of it as a set of ideas. And I love the set of ideas that make up America, even if we haven't lived up to them. And he seemed to straight up not like those ideas. But he, this is a liberal person, all right? Uh, I think immigrated here. Maybe he was born here and his family's, or I think his family's Egyptian, possibly. The, this guy's a left-winger a secularist, and he wrote in the Washington Post a an editorial that sort of argues to his left-wing elite friends, hey, 
here's some reason that you should have some understanding for the folks that you see protesting, why you should have some understanding for those around uh, uh, that, that you're looking down on, that, that you want to think of as rubes and stupid. So I, I just want to read you one paragraph from Fareed Zakaria. He writes, let's look at this COVID-19 crisis through this prism. Imagine you're an American who works with his hands. You're a truck driver, a construction worker, you're an oil rig mechanic. And you've lost your job because of the lockdowns. 36 million people have lost their jobs because of the shutdowns. And you turn on the television and hear medical experts, academics, technocrats, and journalists explain that we must keep the economy closed. In other words, we must keep you not working and taking care of your family because public health is important. Now, all these people you see on TV are making the case, that are making this case, they have jobs. Their standard of living hasn't changed at all. In fact, all of their jobs are getting better. They're in higher demand. Now, you, the person who works with his hands, the trucks driver, the construction worker, the oil rig mechanic, you think what you do is important. You need to take care of your family. But you've lost your job. Well, they have theirs, and they're telling you you shouldn't have yours. And so you start to feel a sense of worthlessness. You start getting terrified about survival. And Fareed Zakaria wisely asks, can't you see why folks in that situation would start to be quite skeptical? They're skeptical of those saying, shut, it, shut everything down and stay shut down, especially as in those rural to suburban places, they see they have not been hardcore affected. Can't you understand their skepticism? And I would say, yes, I can see that because I fit into the previous category. My income hasn't been affected at all. Actually, I think I've told you. Podcast has done a little better, and that's a secondary source of income for me, but it's done better. I've had no interruption in my life when it comes to economics. And so I fit into the first category. It's not hard for me to understand the folks in another category and how they feel. That's one. The other is from a book I've been, oh, that's a lie. Uh, a book I have been audio reading. Also, Blinkist, there's an app called Blinkist that will summarize books for you. But I have been working through the audiobook. A guy named Michael Lind, who I admire, he's got a new book out called The, the New Class War. And when I say new, I don't know, February or something, like it came out right before the epidemic started. And his argument here is a good prism. It's a good framework as we think through COVID-19 and its responses. He would explain this cultural divide that we've even turned the shutdown and how to handle COVID-19. We've turned a pandemic response into a liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican divide. Something that should not have been a political divide. That has become a political divide. How did we get there? Well, Michael Lind writes that there's a new class war. When you think about class warfare, I'm sure most of you, especially my age and older, and my audience skews younger, so maybe some of you won't have this background, but that's an old Marxist thing. That's a capitalist Marxist thing. The class war. That's the proletariat and and the bourgeoisie, that eventually the proletariat, the working class, that they would rise up against the the bourgeoisie, the, um, the ruling class. I just distracted myself. I have to do this. Uh, Cody Fields from, I've had him on the show before, 
ridiculously smart guy. He's got a great blog that you need to go read. It has been on fire lately. But I was on his show recently, and he made such a good point that I wish I would have come up with myself. He caught that the media is starting to say workers constantly. They're not saying employees, the employees of companies. If you start listening for it, as I have, it does happen. It's this many million workers out of jobs, but not employees. Because even if it's subconscious, there is that language of class warfare that's seeping into that secular leftist agenda that we think of folks as the workers, not the employees, not that they were had a relationship with an employer, that they had a, a space in an organization, but no, no, no. They're the workers of the world. They're not the, the employees of Amazon, the employees of AT&T, the employees of Apple, the employees of Walmart. No, they're the workers. It's a really good catch by him. You should go read his blog and listen to it. It's really good. All right. So Michael Lind says it's not just that anymore. That's not the divide, the folks who have a bunch of money and don't have a bunch of money. And because I'm right up against the break, I get to be very professional right now and give you a teaser. When we come back, I will give you Michael Lynn's three new ways that we're having a culture war. And then I've got a lot more for you. I think some of it will surprise you. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Providentially, over the break, I went to my email, and I saw an email from a listener for something I should cover. His name is Mark. It's, I think I have several Marks who listen. Uh, so I, I mentioned briefly on a previous episode that I wanted to get into the 1619 Project from the New York Times that basically claims the entire United States is based on slavery. I'm going to try to do that now in this show. So let me let me hurry through some of this COVID-19 stuff, and we'll jump into that. So that was well-timed on that email. So Michael Lynn has this new book, The New Class War, I, sh- I should have mentioned. By the way, you're listening to The Corey Truax Show, his radio talk, and also wherever you find the podcast. Thank you. The old class war was proletariat versus bourgeoisie. It was rich versus poor. And so now what Michael Lind is saying is the, the new battlegrounds are government, culture, and economy. Lind's further thesis is essentially this. There is a a mass underclass or middle class that g- goes throughout racial groups that just feel alienated on the outside. That they have their concerns and their needs and they look at government and the government is not worried about those things. They have no power over the government. They have the, this small town or rural to suburban values and the things that they believe about family and hard work and individual responsibility and freedom. And then they look out at their culture, the movies made, the TV made, the music made, the books that are published, and they look at the culture and go, that has nothing to do with me. It's not, that's not my life. Those aren't my values, and they have no power over the culture. And then they look at the economy. They do look at the giant corporations of, and see things like an Amazon or a Walmart as a as a challenge to their way of life. They see the the giant industrial farming world challenging their small town farms and they just feel powerless. And it's Michael Lynn's contention that that's where things like Brexit came from. It's where the Trump election came from. It's that there's powerful, highly educated people, that the, the ruling class, and that there's a, a big mass of people out there that still are making a living. It's not that they're poor necessarily. They, they're making a decent living 
but they're feeling the powerlessness. And that connects back to this COVID-19 thing, where what's happening is folks on TV who are totally unaffected when it comes to their lifestyle in government and in the culture, movie stars, music stars, pop stars, and economic uh, elites who, make, who might make one argument, the, there's, there's this class of people who are saying, none of what you're talking about is affecting me. It's not my life. And so I connect that back originally to my original point. For those on the left who kind of turn their nose up and sneer at the folks who would protest or say we want to get back into economic motion, at least consider those things. There's a, a group of people that feel powerless out there. There is this reality that those who are calling for shutdowns forever, that they're not being affected the same way as the, 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 the shut, excuse me, they're not being affected the way that the people who are being shut down are being affected. It's one thing to have your income, have your job, and have a moderately affected lifestyle versus the people who are really seeing their lives in some ways fall apart. So let's just all be people that understand each other the best we can and uh, where we're coming from on these things so we, we can be more understanding uh, on these points of view. Two more corona, corona stories, and I want to get into the 1619 Project thing. One, from freeop.org, freeop.org. Headline, nursing homes and assistant living facilities account for 40% of COVID-19 deaths. That is as of May 12th, 2020. So of all the deaths in the United States, consider that, the 80-some-odd thousand, around 40,000 happened in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. That should first be heartbreaking. The, this, the, the case is half. Half of the, I say 40%, less than half, but around there, have been in just those facilities. And then when you include just the folks who weren't in assisted assisted living facilities or nursing homes, this thing has really ravaged older people. That has been the group. There's outliers and stories and anecdotes for all the others, but for all the other statistical groups and demographics, but man, that should first just make us sad. But I'm looking at the map now from the, the, uh, from the CDC collected statistics. And for a lot of states, it's well above 40%. In North Carolina and in Virginia, it's 60% of all deaths happened in those facilities. In New York, consider this. In, that's Pennsylvania. I got my geography wrong. In Pennsylvania, it's 67% of deaths happened in those facilities. In, in New York, where it really was so bad, it is still 12%. 12% of their deaths happened in, in those facilities. And so while this has been something that's affected us all in some ways, when it comes to deaths, it has particularly been hard on the nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and that should point us towards policies, procedures, and protection for that second and third wave that's coming Uh because they're particularly vulnerable. I see in Minnesota, they have the most. 81% of their deaths came in just those facilities alone. One more COVID story. This is from The Federalist. According to uh, University of Illinois, uh, who partnered with Harvard, excuse me, the Harvard Business School, they are uh, giving the estimate that it could be 100,000 small businesses are permanently shut because of COVID-19 response. 
we already have more than 100,000 small businesses who have shut down. That's already happened. University of Illinois and Harvard come together and say it is likely that 100,000 of them will never come back. Actually had a friend at church tell me, because we, before this all happened, we were planning some fundraiser stuff to do at Fats Cafe in Easley. We're going to raise some money for the church. And as she has been working with Fats to try to set that stuff back up, the local owner here, the uh, what's it called, a franchisee, said not sure. He, he said they're not sure they're ever going to open again. They might be ruined. It's just shut down forever. And and so that all of those calculations have to go into all of our policy prescriptions, recognizing what places are hardest hit and what, what the the business impact is, because business impact is people. What what are businesses made of? Businesses are made of people. So there's human impact on all these things. And so I saw that on the Federalist. It puts a a number to a concept, and that is quite important to do. All right. I didn't have this in my notes, and so I'm going to go off the top of my head a little bit. But I got this email from Mark over the break that said, hey, you said you were going to talk about the 1619 Project. Are you ever going to do that? Well, yes, Mark. I'll do it right now. First, in the facts of the case. The 1619 Project was published late last year or early this year, so late 2019 or early 2020. It was in the New York Times, and it recently won a Pulitzer Prize for its work. Here is the central premise of the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project would come to people like me and you who went to school and learned our history and say, you learned of history uh, from 1607, Jamestown, the landing at Jamestown. You learned, I think it's 1613, maybe Plymouth Rock Plantation. You learned about pilgrims coming to the United States to seek out religious freedom and to to get away from persecution, as it were, in, in, in Britain. And then you learned 1776. You, you learned the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and you learned... Uh, then the Articles of Confederation, the, these are the dates you learned about how America came into being. Moreover, you learned the ideas. If, if you learned the history I learned properly, that the, the ideas on which we were founded were that, the, that well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we hold these truths to be self-evidence, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first draft said property. So those are our values. We go to the Constitution and we know what values do we have. We believe in the rule of law, that we're not ruled by men, we're ruled by law, that lawmakers and lawgivers are held under the same standards that those who are living under the law are held to. We believe in separation of powers, that no, no one branch of government or no one type of government should have too much power. We believe in liberty, like freedom. But th- this is who we are. 1619 Project comes and says, everything you learned is wrong. The country didn't start in 1607 with Jamestown. It didn't start in 1776 in Philadelphia with the Declaration of Independence. It started in 1619. That was the first time a slave came to the United States of America. And then the 1619 Project proceeds to tell the entire story of the United States of America and all the goings-on of this continent since 1619 through the last, that's 400 years, through 400 years of history, through only the lens of slavery and racial prejudice. That that is the centerpiece of who we are. The centerpiece of what happened on this continent 
is racial prejudice and is racism and slavery. There's a lot wrong there. I want to start here. I don't want to, I don't want to paper over a reality, though. Slavery is one of the United, this continent's greatest sins, one of the greatest evils perpetrated ever, what we ever had. You know, in particular, because it does, it actually does combine the sin of human ownership, but with a prejudice, a bias, and a racism. You know, most of slavery in human history wasn't based on race. A lot of it was just economic. It was people enslaving others that looked like them. It, had, it didn't have a cultural bias attached to it. The vast majority of slavery over, over the world's history, that's something that we do forget. Slavery is super normal in human history. Like, everybody was enslaving everybody. This was a really normal institution for most of human history. It's very re- recently, the few, last few hundred years, that we stopped doing that to each other. And it's still happening now. And the vast majority of slave, the vast majority of the institution of slavery in human history has not been based on race. The North American version, though, was. There, were, there weren't white people enslaving white people the same way that around the world there were people who looked like you still enslaving you. And so I don't want to minimize the role slavery and racism have played in the United States of America. It is a... It is... You can't have more than one centerpiece. There is no centerpiece of American history. It is one of the main pillars. That's, I, I will give that away. It, and not just admit that. Admit sounds like I begrudgingly admit it or something. I don't begrudgingly admit it. It's a fact. It's what it is. And we need, need to deal with that and process it and understand it. Now, it, it, isn't, the, it isn't the centerpiece, though. It, the, the fact that there was slavery and then racial injustice and prejudice throughout time doesn't mitigate everything else I just said. Religious liberty that we came here for, that we wanted to be individuals, making our own destiny, creating our own future, in control of our own, our, our own property and, and control of our, of our own lives, not lords and ladies and kings uh, and queens, and not class systems, that we wanted to build something new and altogether... Uh, and, and altogether better for humans. This, this is actually one of my favorite arguments for America. There's a reason the rest of the world keeps trying to come here, guys, even now. It's, w- once we got going, the rest of the world said, there, I would like to be there, please. That's the place I want to be. And even now, because of who we are ideologically, what we mean to the world, come and make your own way. You've got a shot here. And as the songs talk about with New York City, and particularly, I would apply it to the United States of America. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Come make something for yourself. That is who we are. And in, in, in the, in the reality of our sin of slavery does not change those things. Now, the 1619 Project even has some factual issues. I'll just give you three. One, the, the, they say that we started the revolution, we decided to break away from Britain, in large part because we wanted to save slavery. One, there's no docu- they have no documentary evidence of that, it's just a claim. Two, in the actual Declaration of Independence, go read the thing, after the, the first paragraph there, Thomas Jefferson starts listing all the grievances. Like, here's all the stuff we don't like as a, as a, as a co- set of colonies that the king is doing. And one of them, he calls, it's either evil or calls a, I can't remember what he calls it, maybe an abomination or something, but the bringing of men, bought and sold men to the colonies. So in our actual document, we did say that to, 
to King George. So the, the revolution was not to save slavery. There's no documentary evidence for that. There's some other factional, fa- uh, factual problems she gives. I have to go fast here. She's, uh, the, main art, the main writer for this said the Civil War, often for Abraham Lincoln, was fought with the idea that we'll free the slaves and give them their own colony and have their own country and they can be segregated away. That's, that's just a myth through history. And now it is a fact that Abraham Lincoln, for, for him freeing the slaves, was also by no means one for equality or thought that black and white people were equal. And then she also writes that during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, that black people fought alone for their, own, for their liberties. And that's not true. There were people from different ethnicities throughout the process that this, this doesn't have to be, uh, that, that helped. And so this doesn't have to be set up as black versus white, which should be set up as right versus wrong. And what was wrong is racial prejudice and bias and slavery and oppression. And what is right is ending the practices and the institutions that allow such things. And so here's the key point here. The 1619 Project says, you, the United States of America, you're built on slavery. It's the centerpiece of who you are. And we need to be able to say back, oh, it's part of our story, and it's a, it, is a ter- it is a horrendous piece of our history. It should be repented of. And the lasting effects of it should be at least addressed verbally and acknowledged, if not through policy, and I don't think there is policy available to address it. But here's something we we can still do as Christian Americans. We can still recognize this country that God established on this earth. It is the greatest place in human history. We we have far out-achieved Rome or Greece. We have far out-achieved the Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And not just out of results, but because of our moral center. That the moral center was there is individuality. That the, that the human being is free to go pursue his or her passions with his or her own abilities and to make it or not on their own. That's a key fundamental moral to who we are and it is that which on which it is that on which we are based. We've run all out of time. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.